Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Welcome along to this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour. Gran Turismo 7 is an absolute trash fire. One of the biggest gaming titles has failed to impress fans and racked up a laundry list of issues. John Riley will join me to discuss. For every new joiner to my team, I sent them a new plant and I sent a note with the plant about growth and how we were going to grow together. The former chief people officer at Zoom will talk about creating company culture remotely and I'll head to Talent Summit in Dublin to hear about the key trends in a post-pandemic world of work. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. On Thursday morning, executives from companies right around the world descended upon the convention centre to attend Talent Summit. This is an annual event organised by Sigmar Recruitment, which looks at the key trends in the employment space. And as we all know by now, how, when and why we work changed dramatically during the pandemic, with technology being the key enabler for that change. So I headed along to find out how the new way we work is impacting the jobs market. But before we get to that, I met with Lynn Oldham, who is the Chief People Officer at Stash. She was, up until a month ago, the Chief People Officer at Zoom, which grew astronomically during her tenure at the company. And I started by asking her how she went about creating a culture of inclusivity in a company as big and vast as Zoom. I think it is challenging because that growth happened while I was there. So I was employee 1384 and we became 7,000 during my tenure. So just continuously looking after it is really where you have to be. You have to start with grabbing folks from candidate all the way through onboarding. You're not really ever letting up on the pedal of purpose and heart. As a, you, you're still always grabbing head, but you need the heart and 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 the mind. So. Um, and it's, I mean, there's lots of tips and tricks, but it's really about making sure that your managers are all doing, you know, empathetic listening and coaching and not being, um, not worrying as much about what somebody's doing at two o'clock in the afternoon, but worrying about the output, right? As opposed to just the, the volume of work or where somebody's sitting. Um, so I, I, I think it's really, I mean, then of course we did lots of things like, we converted the gym benefit to to uh, to grocery benefits, DoorDash benefits. We um, we we gave people opportunity to really um, be a whole human, right? And and we tried in every thing from mental health benefits. So there were a lot of things that we added along the way to give people that full feeling that we cared about them, not just. Uh, as employee number through 1384, but but um, as a whole human being, yeah. We did a series called Future of Work, and we looked at what matters in terms of uh, where, when, and where people are working, how people are working, and why they're working. And one thing that came up is the importance of managers. Mm-hmm. Can anyone be a manager? <laughs> 
And how much do you have to invest in the soft skills? Because very often people get promoted because they're good at yeah. the job. Absolutely. But soft skills matter, right? Yeah. You, 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 we have this conversation all the time, nature versus nurture. And how much of being a manager and having those skills is innate um, versus learned. I do think there's a piece that can be learned. I do think that that's something companies are going to need to focus on now and definitely into the future. I think more assessments and 360s are going to be required before we just anoint someone a manager. I think it's really important that we make sure that they are living the values and are um, want to do that for others, right? Um, so, I mean, we're going to talk about this afternoon, but some of the things we, we, we write about in our blog, because we have a blog on this topic, are the idea that maybe someone uh, is, a, you've got two different managers, one for the work and one for the, the development side of things. So the, it's, you can do it in a multitude of ways, but for sure, not everybody um, who wants to be a manager is necessarily ready to be a manager and you need to ensure readiness before you promote. Uh, one of the big things that happened during the pandemic here in Ireland, we didn't really do it that much at all, was people worked from home mm -hmm. or they worked from somewhere that wasn't the traditional office for the first time. Yeah. A lot of companies now have made the decision to just ditch the office. And while that is exciting and while there are opportunities with that, there are individuals who maybe feel like they've just been cast away. Mm particularly if they are living in shared accommodation yeah. or small accommodation where they don't have a, a, a break between yeah. the, the personal life and the professional life. How important is it for the employee to communicate how they're feeling to the, to the employer? And how important is it for the employer to be aware and proactively engaging with the employees on this issue? Uh, it's paramount. So one of the things that I loved about my new company and why I joined is their value is, is uh, prioritizing people. And that translates into work anywhere, anytime. No set schedule, uh, no set place. Um, I think this idea of choice and letting an employee choose is gonna be critical for employers going forward that will be successfully winning the war for talent. Um, and I do think also with a from a retention perspective, if you want people not to vote with their feet, you really have to listen and, and respond to employees. It seems like, not seems, it is, the, the, the equation is reversed. The employer used to be the, you know, the final say, and I think it's becoming the employee, if, if not already. And I don't think employers who aren't listening, and that includes the employee who doesn't want to work in uh, a flat with five roommates who are all talking on the phone at the same time, right? That's just as bad as sitting at a, a, in a big room in an office place where everybody's talking. So I do think one of the things my new company does is we give everyone a stipend for uh, a WeWork. So if you don't want to go into the traditional office or you're not near one, because a third of our workforce is now outside of an office uh, location, we give them monies to do something different so they don't have to work at home, which I think is really critical, but puts our value of prioritizing people out front, which I love. There are some who might raise their eyebrow or smirk at the notion of, you know, feeling with your heart rather than your head when it comes to business because yeah. they might just care about the bottom line. Yeah. 
I'm no expert. From what I've looked at, though, if you don't care about your people, your bottom line will be impacted somewhere along Did the way. Did you read my script? Is that what it is? Because I'm going to tell you that I don't believe that the bottom line is can ever be as good as you want it to be unless you're taking care of your people. people the, the, the employees thrive, your business will thrive. Bottom line. That's that. I've seen it. I've never seen it different than that. You have to take care of your employee population and they will take care of you. There's a fear factor that uh, with the remote working or the work anywhere culture that we might lose some of the connection and for people who are defined by what they do. But I suppose there is the fear that if you're not with your team or if you're not in a branded office or if you don't have the branded mouse mat, that maybe you don't feel as connected. It's hard to be as connected on a Zoom or a team screen. How do you create or imitate that sense of connection? Um, You can do it in a number of ways from tools. So things like Slack and other tools. There's some tools here today that are really interesting I want to look at. For the most part, you've got to create them. It's not going to necessarily happen um, on its own. Although I do have, when I was at Zoom, a set of employees in the Denver office who were constantly out in the in the field playing and, and playing soccer or whatever. Um, but I do think that we'll have to create them around different things that we're looking to do. Connection is one of them. And it's, it's not impossible. It's just, it's going to take more work. We can't, it, it, it's, it's one of the most mission critical things we're going to have to do, yeah? To make sure that teams are uh, connected in a way that can get you know, the work done besides the camaraderie, right? Yeah. My final question is for businesses, uh, for executives listening to this now, who might be in an SME that don't have a huge budget, they can't afford to take everyone on a skiing holiday in Austria for a weekend. I get that. How can they go about and make sure that their employees feel valued if they can't afford to take them away or give them 10 grand bonus or whatever it might be? No, it's a great question and I think it's going to depend on each organization and what they can do. You can do simple things. What I did in my last company was for every new joiner to my team, I sent them a new plant. And I sent a note with the plant, it was either a quote or a discussion about growth and how we were going to grow together. Um, And they look back at the plant. We would sometimes in a meeting when we were talking via Zoom, I could see how the plant was progressing. So it's simple things we can do um, to just put that humanity in the connectivity. Um, It doesn't have to be a ski vacation. Um, And then obviously on the tools that we use to connect virtually, there's opportunities to do things that are more social. Uh, social connections than just um, you know needing to meet in one space right so in fact I've got a team member we're going to do an off-site in my New York office when I get back he's not been um, immunized uh, so he's going to join by by virtual uh, connection and I'm thinking hard on my way home about how do I make sure he feels like he's in the room um, or is there another way to do it so um, it's Again, it's just going to be thoughtful, which goes back to your question on managers, which is why it's so critical to ensure that your managers have the ability to um, think that through and connect people, right? 
That was Lynn Oldham, formerly of Zoom, now the Chief People Officer at Dash. And coming up here on News Talk, we'll hear about the death of the foosball table in favour of good morals from your boss. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Um, you may remember a few months back, Emmett Ryan of the Business Post joined me to discuss the case of Elizabeth Holmes. She is the Stanford dropout who went on to create a billion dollar company. And things took a very dramatic downward spiral. And she was recently found guilty on four of 11 charges including three counts of fraud and one count of conspiring to defraud private investors in her company, Theranos. If you haven't read the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, I would highly recommend it. But there's now a TV show on Disney Plus called The Dropout, which tells the entire story and it is compelling viewing. Here's just a snippet that really seems to capture the determination and the focus of Elizabeth Holmes from a very young age. So... Enron, huh? I saw that coming. (laughs) I wish I had as well. (laughs) Well, on a lighter note, uh, early decision at Stanford, huh? Mm -hmm. You must be a legacy. No, I'm a president scholar. It means that I'm the top 10% of the accepted students. Yeah. Okay. You're not shy about that. (laughs) Well, why would I be? I don't know. President Scholar sounds like you're going to be president someday. I don't want to be president. I I want to be a billionaire. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Is this cheese? It's Chevra. You know, it's not just about the money. You have to have a, a purpose. She's going to study biomedical engineering. We come from a long line of doctors on my side of the family. First step is Stanford. And then I'm going to graduate and I plan on inventing a product and start a company. Well, I may know a little something about that. Richard's company has hundreds of medical patents. Mm -hmm. He could give you some advice. But don't you just file patents so companies have to pay you off? No. Right? No. That is not what Richard does at all. I wouldn't put it that way. The medical training company that I started sold for over $50 million. But I get the feeling you think you're smarter than me. Yeah, that's a snippet of The Dropout on Disney+. Plus. If you're looking for a new show to, to binge, I would highly recommend it. It's just great. The story is bonkers. It's completely true. As I said, Bad Blood is a great read and then uh, The Dropout is an excellent watch and it's on uh, Disney+. Plus. Now, before the break, we heard from the former Chief People Officer at Zoom about creating a company culture in this new world of work that has evolved as a result of the pandemic. But what's the market like for job seekers and what matters most when it comes to our professional lives? I met with Johnny Campbell, who's the CEO of Social Talent to discuss. And I started by asking him to tell me a little bit more about what his company does. So we're um, a learning platform for organisations to help them hire, onboard and develop and engage their teams. Employees, more than they've ever are looking for organisations who are doing the right thing. They're doing good in the world. It's not good enough to have a company just to make money. 
lots of us used to work for companies that were just out there to make money. And that was okay because we, we took a paycheck and we're okay. But when you have this moment in the world two years ago where we all thought we were all going to die or our families are going to die, you wake up and go, I don't want to work for those people anymore. I want to work for a company who are actually going to make uh, a proper dent in the universe. I think that's become one of the biggest trends we've seen is that folks want to work for organizations who are doing good. You want to get your paycheck, of course, but you also want to know that I'm working for good people who actually share my values. And it's not just about the fancy canteen. That can be a tricky thing to decipher though, if you are on the job hunt, because I, as a prospective employee, and I'm, I'm interviewed by the company, not the other way around. So how can I, or are there ways that I, a prospective employee, can find out if the company stands for things and if there's more to it than just you know a snappy slogan or maybe reviews on Glassdoor or whatever it might be? I sat yesterday with 10 heads of HR talking about this values piece and what works. And we all decided that what doesn't work is what the company officially says about how great they are and their values and the amazing good they're doing. Organizations that do good, and you find out probably because you spoke to somebody who works there, and that's the only way you'll ever know, they're the companies who win. It's authentic. It's a difficult line to, uh, to kind of tread because if you make a big deal out of it, folks don't believe it and employees think it's disingenuous. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just do it, people will find out. So sites like Glassdoor, online reviews, finding out what companies are doing, looking at what their executives are saying on LinkedIn or on Facebook or on Instagram, that's where you actually typically get the truth. But if they're shouting about it on their website, it's probably disingenuous and people won't believe that. One of the really interesting things that happened during the pandemic was that a lot of people started working for companies having never met a single person in real life. How important did the onboarding process become during the pandemic to ensure that people felt like they were part of the company? Onboarding pre-2020 was all about the head. How can I give you the practical information about how you do your job, how things work around here? What we woke up to is that it needs to be about the head and equally the heart. So how can I make you feel something? This is a very critical, pivotal moment for folks moving jobs. It's very uh, risky, you know, you're fragile. And if the organization isn't looking after your heart as much as your head when you move jobs and when you onboard, they will fail. We have to feel like I made the right decision. These are good people, they share my values, they care for me, I'm in the right place. Is that happening in actuality though? Are people walking away from good paychecks because things don't sit right with them? We've had the pandemic, we have the war in Ukraine. We are going to go through turbulent times with the economy over the coming years as well. Are, will people really walk away from a good paycheck, a stable job, um, because it doesn't feel right? Jess, if you're not earning enough to pay the bills and to put a little bit aside, you can't afford to leave for values, being honest, right? But if you're in a job that's paying decent amount that you can survive on, you're okay, then it does become the values. You'll take a job that has, let's say, more flexibility or you're working for an organization or a person who's better aligned with your values that has a little bit less. Like not massive amounts of difference, don't get me wrong, but it isn't all about salary. And the surveys we look at when we ask employees about this is that either it's neck and neck compensation versus what they generally call flexibility or flexibility wins out. Compensation never wins out, not in the last year and a half. Is that something that's changed? Because when big tech moved to Ireland, you know, massively so with the social media platforms, for example, I was going around and doing tours of the office buildings and they were all at pains to showcase the foosball table and the beer fridge and the crack that they had. I don't hear as much talk about that at all anymore. It seems to be, I can leave at three o'clock to pick the kids up from school. I can, you know, finish at four o'clock on a Friday to go surfing if I'm based, you know, by the sea, whatever it is. Values do seem to have changed. 
values have changed. We thought it was important to have a fancy canteen and beautiful buildings to go work in. And then we realized, actually, it's better to wake up in the morning, go to work with no shoes on, to sit in your spare room or at your kitchen table and be able to take the washing out. And it didn't actually matter as much that you had free snacks because you know what? You have free snacks in your own house. Well, not free, right? But the values did change there because we realized we didn't need all that stuff. But it's not to say that perks don't work. You know, we, we brought our team to Austria skiing last month, right, to get together. We can afford to do that because we don't pay for a fixed office anymore. We don't pay for all those silly perks. We can do something really meaningful, all hang out for four days, not talk about work and just be together. And companies are realizing you can still do those fantastic things for your team if you're not wasting the money on, on an expensive office in downtown Dublin. Yeah, so did the removal of the office or the fixed office or the five-day-a-week, 40-hour-a-week in the office has changed dramatically for a lot of people. How important is it that, you know, businesses, regardless of their size, invest in what you're talking about there, that community feel for a company? Because there's nothing worse than having a team of 100 and having 20 of those people sitting at home feeling lost and not connected with anything to do with the company. There's a fine line. Companies are trying to bring people back into the office because they say, well, they miss community. and People need to work together and meet each other. And they do, and community is really good. But what we've learned is for a lot of work, you don't need to be together to do it. And, and that's where the separation is. I think the smart companies are realizing that you need to bring people together to have community, to get to know each other, to build bonds, but not to work. Like do the work remotely like we've been doing for two years. Leave it alone. But get together to go out for lunch, um, to do a team building event, right? To go on a trip together, to go cycling together, right? To go for a walk together. But don't bring people together in an office in town that takes an hour and a half to get to, to sit in a cold meeting room to do the same thing you could have done at home. It is an employee's market right now in the sense that you can prioritize your values and go find an organization that will give you the flexibility and values that you need. And right now you'll probably find that job. Um, it might change. The war in Ukraine introduces uncertainty in the stock market. People might slow down. I know teams that are beginning to slow down some of their hiring. Um, that might be just temporary, hopefully is. Um, but I think it will still largely remain an employee's market because the bigger picture is that there is a skills gap. The skills of the uh, of the world that we are, are morphing into don't quite match the skills that the workforce has. And so there will be this disparity for some time. McKinsey's talked about it. I've written about this and done a lot of research around this, that you know, we need to change those skills. And I don't mean everyone has to become a programmer or developer. I'm saying there's a lot of skills. You, know, you look at a, uh, a, retail, uh, a, a retail outlet two years ago. It lo- operates very differently to a retail outlet today that can ship all over the world, that can do online, et cetera. The skills required to then market and run that business just look different, and they changed overnight. So I do think that skills... Uh, gap is a bigger trend that will uh, persist past the ebbs and flows of mini recessions or downturns, etc. And that will still put the, it'll put the power in the hands of the employees who have those skills. Mm-hmm. To assume that you are an employee and therefore are a job seeker and therefore it's your market regardless is, is a bit false. If you're an, a job seeker who has the skills or is investing in getting the skills, then I think you have the next decade to look forward. The number one reason why people leave a job is opportunities for advancement aren't there. And the number one people why, reason why people take a job is because there are opportunities, or perceived opportunities. And, and education's part of that opportunity. It's also promotion, progression, opportunities to do more interesting work, to take on uh, new roles and responsibilities. So the best way to keep your team is to invest in them, to give them more opportunities, more education, which is part of it, but not the only thing, more opportunities to try out new things. 
And we're seeing that employers have moved from hiring for experience and you know the right academics to hiring for potential. So do you have the core skills and can we teach you then to do the job we need you to do? Because there aren't enough people out there who have done it in the past. So we need to find people who have the capability to do it and then we need to build that. And that is gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna make them stay and it gives much more opportunity uh, to, to everyone it makes a much more equal way of hiring. That was Johnny Campbell, CEO of Social Talent. And while I was down at Talent Summit on Thursday, I met with one of the speakers who put forward a new way to welcome young people into the workforce. Cassidy Leventhal, I'm with Achieve Partners. Uh, we're a firm investing in the future of learning and earning. So I spoke today about uh, the future of apprenticeships. So we know apprenticeships have existed in Europe for you know a thousand years, uh, but there's a new American model for apprenticeships that's actually being delivered in the private market, so without government funding yet, um, that we hope will grow and scale. Uh, and it's putting talent to work in entry-level jobs that give them career paths for the rest of their lives. Um, so it's a model I'm really excited about and you know, wanted to share with a lot of the HR leaders here today. So explain how that works because I, I suppose sometimes the, the, the terms apprenticeships and internships, a lot of people just instantly think either working for free or working for not a whole lot, be that experience yeah. or pay. Um, so how does this differ and do we need to do a bit of a rebrand or like re-imaging of what uh, apprenticeships and internships are? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, in the US, in fact, they don't always call it apprenticeship. Uh, one, one model term we use a lot is hire, train, deploy. The idea being that somebody, it's not an internship, you're hired from day one. You're a full-time employee with benefits and you're paid to learn. So you're actually paid to upskill and then you are deployed out later for your first two years. That's the first two years of work experience that are actually the hardest for a candidate to get a hold of. Um, so I think it's there is some rebranding that might need to happen. And I think we're starting to see that when we talk about hire, train, deploy. Um, you know, you ask kind of how different is the model? Um, you know, in this model, uh, you are you're not underpaid, <laughs> you're paid entry level salary. And as you upskill, you continue to grow in your pay rate. So the goal is to give you, you know, have a salary that's low enough that employers are willing to take a chance and then bring candidates on and continue to give them pay raises as they grow and scale. And is this something that is, you know, looking to encourage people who may, didn't go, who may not have gone to third level education or people who you know are looking to get into the workforce and aren't quite sure what avenue to take. Yeah, great question. Um, both, right? So, uh, you know, I think when we started doing programs like this in the U.S., everybody assumed it would be you know I, I majored in English, so I can say this English major who realized that they couldn't find a job and wanted to learn IT. What actually happened is we got computer science graduates with experience and skill set who still weren't getting hired because they didn't have that first two years of experience on the job that every entry-level job today actually asks candidates. So it's overcoming this catch-22 where no matter what career you want to enter, you're being asked to have experience in that career already to get the job. And so it's really open to anyone. It's open to people who majored in a field, who didn't major. The goal is to you know assess pretty rigorously based on merit and then give people a chance. And, and so when you do that, you get you know, you get non-degreed candidates, you get much more diverse candidates, you get more low-income candidates. Um, so you're really upping the quality um, by taking a chance on people. That, that assessment on merit, I think, is something that uh, would be very, very welcome in a lot of industries because yeah. sometimes uh, recent graduates can get into jobs based on an exam result page but yeah. may not have the temperament or the soft skills or the personality or a whole host of things yeah. uh, to suit a role. So is this about trying to weed that out and to try and fix the recruitment process, which may have been a little bit broken for a period of time? 
Yes. I mean, the, part of the reason why recruiting is broken today is that employers don't know how to assess properly or it's too expensive or it's too inefficient. They've got, you know, sometimes thousands, millions of applications. So they're, they're cheating. They're asking for two years of experience for any role. Um, the alternative is to do real deep work, doing the assessments, weeding, you know, it's not so much about weeding out as matching, right? Finding the right place for everybody um, that's a fit with what they want to do and with their skill set. Uh, and if you put that upfront work in, what we've shown in the U.S. is there's real ROI there. This is great for people, but it's also great for businesses. This works. What is the response from employers to this in this model? Because yeah. it is a risk for them to a certain extent. It's, yes, they do reap benefits, but the initial outlay, I suppose, lays at their feet. Uh, yes. I mean, so th that's kind of when you're trying to pick your apprenticeship model, right? One model is the employer does this in-house and they have to sponsor it and they have to set it up and run it. And that works, but it is expensive. Uh, and a lot of firms, you know, if it's not a priority, they'll they'll sort of drop it after a year or so or never quite scales. Mm -hmm. This model, the, what I was talking about in the U.S., is sort of an outsourced apprenticeship. And the way that works is actually staffing firms, intermediaries, consulting firms are basically running this model at scale. And so they're bringing in hundreds of people and then deploying them to clients. Mm -hmm. And those clients get a chance to try out the, the talent. Um, so it's a pretty low risk for the client because the client can say, well, let me see you do the job and I'll let you know if you, you get the job. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually, the goal is really to absorb risk from the employer mm -hmm. because what we found is employers are really loath to take that chance without it. Mm -hmm. And just from your own point of view, it seems like an exciting time to be working in this space. You've definitely made waves in the time that you've been working in it. What's drawn you to this particular field? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, like many, I fell into it. Um, you know, I started my career in consulting where I think actually that this is more the case, where people are allowed to try out things and prove that they can do them. And there, so there's a little more room for training and risk taking in the consulting world. Uh, and saw that a lot of my friends who hadn't done that pathway felt stuck. They didn't have a way to take a chance or try something new. Um, and, and so it was, you know, partly that, partly doing a lot of recruiting for consulting and realizes, realizing that graduates weren't ready and they needed more help and just trying to figure out how you how you put all the pieces of the system together you know I think we've got great talent we've got employers who really want to change right you're saying you know we've got the summit here everyone's talking about it um it's just people who need to put the pieces together in the middle and so that's kind of what I want to do that was Cassidy Leventhal of Achieve Partners who was speaking at Talent Summit on Thursday here in Dublin coming up next here on News Talk we'll take a closer look at the trouble Gran Turismo 7 finds it in right now Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk with Jess Kelly here on News Talk. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. And I'm joined once again by John Riley, editor of TheEffect.net. John, how are you? Really good, Jess. How are you? I'm very well now. The, the sun is shining, which always helps. Um, yes. I want to talk to you a little bit about a gaming controversy that has emerged about one of the titles that there was quite a bit of hype, but it hasn't gone down that, that, that well. Um, tell us the latest on what's going on with Gran Turismo 7. 
Yeah, so Gran Turismo 7 uh, is, one, is like the most fam- one of the most famous racing franchises in the world, and it launched there on March 4th for the PS4 and the PS5 to pretty glowing reviews. We gave it a 4.8 out of 5 on our site, and overall on Metacritic, which is like an aggregator, gave it like 87, like really strong, and not necessarily unsurprisingly strong reviews, because it's a PlayStation you know, tentpole title. So it's, it was, you know, you'd be surprised if it didn't get the, such high reviews. But since its launch, which has not been even over a month now, um, there's been a lot of debacle and, you know, updates have come out and, you know, players have been, well, be, before the updates have even come out, players have kind of been given out that, you know, it's been a hard game where you have to grind. Where, you know, in gaming terms, grinding is where you just have to race and race and race and race and you get very little payout to buy the, ne- the new car or the next car in the game to move on up to progress your story. So uh, recently there, last week, there was an actual, like this game came out and unfortunately for people that don't have fantastic broadband connections, it was a title that needed an always connected, always online connection for basically all parts apart from the arcade section. So that kind of doesn't sound great to gamers that just want to buy a game in a shop and then just go home and play it and not have to worry about being connected to broadband or worry about outages or whatnot. So last week, the game went down for what it was about 30 hours. So that's a long time in gaming terms. That's a long time for any service, really, that get, you know to go down, especially for, for, for the servers for this title to go down where you can't really progress through the game. You've paid 70 euro for this mm-hmm. game or 80 euro, should I say, some gamers for the PS5 version. And then for 30 hours, they weren't able to play it. That's outrageous. So the, it is. And th- th- the fact that they, they you know, made the game an always online title, that really stung players. But not only that, when the title came back online after the outage, it, gamers found that the update that was being rolled out in the, in the interim made it even harder for them to kind of progress through the game and to, to, to be awarded credits or to, to win credits in their races. Um, and then there was like microtransactions that have been dotted throughout since launch. Now, these microtransactions, which are basically like tiny little two euro, three euro, four euro payments that gamers can make to kind of progress quicker through the game, weren't part of the game when it was originally given to reviewers like us. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, it didn't tarnish ga- reviewers impression of the title because the word microtransaction in gaming is a dirty word because it just says it seems I paid 80 quid for this game and you're now offering more ways for people to progress quicker through the game than me by paying more than I'm willing to pay. So it just, it, it's not pleasant for gamers. There's also already... an element of, uh, uh, now look, I'm not trying to, you know, pee on anyone's parade, but when I hear stuff like that, it makes me worried for uh, people who may have addiction issues or yeah. who may, you know, have the compulsion for, for gambling and so on, because you see it where, you know, if you want to get to the next level or if you want to get 100 coins so you can buy a new car or whatever it is, yep. just pay two ninety nine. And you yep. may think, well, two ninety nine is nothing. But if you're someone who's sitting down and you're fully immersed in a game for like four hours a day across a month and you're spending two ninety nine every few hours or whatever, yep. it all adds up. Absolutely. And the fact, obviously, it's your credit card is attached straight to your to your PlayStation account. It's as simple as a press of a button, like any like online transact, like any online transaction. It's instantaneous. And you have that new car, you have those new credits. And previously, this this has always been a kind of a bit of a, a, a hot spot in gaming for the last number of years. And it was more so with titles from Electronic Arts. They were kind of known as loot boxes, which were basically like um, a roulette or kind of a gambling machine where you had no idea what you were actually buying. So you'd literally pull a, a, a virtual stick or whatever. You know, you know, FIFA was was really badly kind of um, 
done by it because they'd be offering these like Pokemon packs. You know, it's not Pokemon cards, but I mean like card packs for mm. players or player cards that you'd pay these little uh, transactional fees to be able to go, oh, I hope I get the top player. Or, you know, I hope I get the best player in this pack. And it was just pure gambling, basically. You didn't know, you, you had no idea what you were buying. So they got a really big slap on the wrist. The, word, the whole microtransactions area was was really kind of um, exposed for, for kind of being a nasty bit of work for, for gamers that were, more, that were a lot more um, volatile or a lot more kind of um, kind of danger on on the borderline of, of of gambling addiction, really, as you said. So this isn't as extreme because you know what you're buying, but still, for those kind of people that want to get through the game quicker, and you know that it, it's kind of like don't don't put try and pull the wool over our eyes. You you know you you've tweaked your game to make it harder to gradually or naturally progress through the game, but you're making it easier in inverted commas by just simply buying these little packages or these little credit um credit uh, options to to kind of make it a bit easier for me. But then that's just adding to the overall cost of the game down the line. So it, they, they've, they've got a slap on the wrist, Gran Turismo. They've come back out that the, the developer, um, they're a Japanese developer, Polyphony Digital, have come out just today to say that, you know, look, we're sorry, we're going to give everyone a million credits um, in the game. And they're also going to start kind of changing how the game rewards um, people for, 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 for finishing races and for progressing through online races and whatever it may be. So they, 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 you know, the PlayStation brand must have said, you better sort this out or you're damaging, you know, your brand and you're damaging the PlayStation brand as a whole. Mm. We need to kind of, we need to get our players back on side. But what I don't understand, and, you know, you, you're the expert that we invite onto the show to talk through games. And over the last number of years, we've talked through how big titles have been paused or delayed until they're absolutely right uh, before they get launched into the world and so on, because there's so much hype that the fans are so loyal. I don't understand how screw-ups like this can happen because this is a big screw. It's a series of multiple screw-ups with a yeah. title that should be completely flawless because of the hype, because of the budgets, because of the reputation involved. That's Yeah, they're all fair points. And this game has been, God, seven or eight years in development, really, in the grand scheme of things. And as I said, it's one of PlayStation's tentpole titles. So the fact they've, they've dropped the ball so much is it's it's tough it's not good and gamers aren't happy and that's all totally acceptable but from the from the other side to kind of see you know to every story those two sides the gaming development world is as is, is as difficult as it's ever been your expectations are absolutely through the roof you have to just hit perfect from the get-go so things unfortunately slip through the cracks errors happen servers go down decisions are made to make games more difficult because you know the, the development costs of the titles are in the hundreds of millions of euro and then these developers and these publishers need to make the money back somehow so the whole gaming landscape is kind of in a bit of flux in a way that you know developers are trying to learn how do we get our money back because the days of just buying a game for 70 euro and that's that and you, you finish it from beginning to end are starting to become numbered because these guys have to make these what they call gaming as a service, GAAS. Um, these games that have like long, long play times or long shelf or not even shelf lives, but you know that they have a kind of an extended lifespan that they can start making money out of people year, two, three years down the line, rather than it just being a six month window where people love it for six months and then that's it. They've made the money off them, 70, 80 euro, and you know put it back on the shelf and then it's on to the next game. Every title. Every developer out there is trying to see how best to extend the lifespan of the game, how best basically to, to extend the monetary 
um, options or income from from their titles. So it's 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 kind of it's it's a it's a weird time, and gamers just need to be a lot more kind of um, aware of what's going on, just so they're not screwed over by titles. They think that you know they're getting the full package from day one, but then realize wait, does does I have to pay for what now for six months down the line for a bit of DLC that should have been included or an upgrade that should have been there on the first day? So yeah, it's 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 mad. I I wonder is the Game Pass and you know the subscription service that you've yeah. spoken about before. I wonder is is that kind of the solution if we look at what Netflix is doing in terms of TV content and you know we spoke on the show last week how they've upped their premium plan out to 20.99 a month but people like me who want the like the best resolution and they want to be able to watch it on mm. four devices are willing to pay 21 quid a month for that. Yeah. I I wonder are we going to see more of that whereby the different um providers will offer game like fans game passes for whatever it is whether it is 20 or 25 quid a month but you get those updates and you then can dip back into games because I think sometimes what happens is gamers will buy a title they'll play it for a wee while either pass it on or trade it in against a new title but if there if if it was possible to get those updates and you know dip back into it in two years time or 18 months time or whatever it is that might help the gaming, the, the production houses to, to keep making money, but also keep people within their franchise. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you said you touched on a good point with the gate with Game Pass. Like that is one of the most successful subscription services in gaming right now. This is Xbox's offering that lets you play games basically anywhere on your phone, on your PC, like a hundred or so games from their from their first party titles, you know, huge hits that we love, like Forza Horizon 5, all the way down to some really popular indie titles. So it's like it's like the Netflix for gaming for like, they, you know, they've been working on this for years and now it's getting really coming into its stride. And like it's 13 euro a month, I think, for its top tier but like you're getting over a hundred games for this and you're getting top tier AAA titles. So the value for money is off the charts. And if you're rather than paying the 70 quid a pop you'd, you'd pay for these new titles, you're just paying a fraction or basically one, you know, 13 euro worth rather than the 70 and you're getting all the other titles and you can play them on any device. It's a lot more favorable to the gamers. It's Microsoft really putting the gamers first. You know, they dropped the ball last generation of, with the Xbox One and kind of the way they focus on things. And Phil Spencer, the head of Xbox gaming um, in there, has really started to put the gamer front and center to the point that they're, they're really um, leading the charge with this with this offering. So, you know, the likes of Sony with, with Gran Turismo, you know, this, this title was a, a premium priced title. And now they're doing these microtransactions. They're starting to show a bit of disparity to who who's favoring who here and where the gamers are sitting in terms of preferential treatment so you know microsoft are starting to spin things around with their xbox offering xbox offering but if rumors are to be believed sony are imminently going to launch their own competitor to their to microsoft's game pass service um that will kind of give what we hope will be better value to playstation fans playstation gamers out there across ps4 ps5 and you know that you'll be able to play your games wherever and fingers crossed they'll start adding more kind of first party titles such as this down the tracks like xbox do just again putting the gamer first and being a lot more a lot better value for money really uh, for gamers because it's it's you know you live by your fans and you die by your fans and if you don't look after them you, you can be damn sure they're going to kind of bring you bring you to you know to the altar and you know sacrifice you in front of all the others because the people won't take any shit anymore from 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 developers trying to screw them over. They won't, and like I, the thing that frustrates me is that we're always like we did a story with you a few weeks ago about you know how valuable there are certain deals, certain gaming titles, certain gaming production houses, and all the rest that are worth so much money. This is a really lucrative industry, yeah. and 
it annoys me when I see things like fans going out and spending 80 quid for a game only to realise that there's essentially in-app purchases but on a game that yep. they can get snaked into. Then, as you said there, you have to have the always online connection. Mm. Like, like it, it's really not good enough. And I do wonder, you know, will we see a bit of a revolt from the gamer gaming community because, you know, ever since the launch of the latest consoles, so the latest Xbox and PlayStation, when they didn't have the supply, I just feel like mm. it's been one sort of hiccup in the world of gaming, particularly console gaming, because um, that's the one that we talk about the most uh, ever since that time. And that's like coming on two years now. Yeah, it's it's like it was a kind of a, an unfortunate perfect sto- per- perfect storm with impacting kind of production of uh, all electronic devices. So therefore, well, not only impacting the production of the new consoles, but then impacting the development of the titles for these new consoles with people having to work remotely and then kind of, you know, games not get, getting the polish they deserve. So it was kind of like you can't get the consoles, but when you do, the games are delayed or when they come out, they're, 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 there's issues with them and they have to be patched. And it's just, it's, it hasn't been as nowhere near as seamless or as smooth as it should be really for gamers putting down the 500 euro for the console putting down the 80 quid for the game and then basically another couple of euro another like 10 15 euro to play that game online because there's subscription services for both kind of titles to let you actually play online for certain uh, games so it's not cheap it is one of the most lucrative media industries if not the most lucrative media forms of media in the world you know gaming is just astronomically massive and esports and everything else like it's its own kind of uh industry or thing in itself like it's mm-hmm. you know we don't need you know i think any gamer knows that but some listeners might be blown away by the numbers when it comes to you know why everyone is trying to get on and you've got google with stadia you have amazon launching luna in the us which is their streaming service all the big hitters are getting in and you know they're buying up all the other studios so yeah it's the only way things are going to change is obviously with backlash online works somewhat and it creates you know negative con- negative uh, perceptions of titles which really does impact sales but then also if gamers don't want a title to succeed they simply don't buy it and you you you, you speak with your wallet or therefore you speak with the lack of using your your money and you mm-hmm. don't buy those titles and then other title other other developers go wait they've got really really badly stung with their approach to how they wanted to monetize that game there's no way we're touching that we're going to kind of focus on the gamers and make sure we put them front um and just make sure you know we can't have our brand dragged into the dirt with those other brands that are doing kind of less than um, favourable uh, you know, things in their games. Yeah, I wonder, because you did a preview of sort of the games that we're looking forward to over the next number of months. I yeah. wonder, you know, will we see changes in approaches now at those game launches when the titles are unveiled? You know, will there be a bit of a protection of the consumer? Will, they, will the gamer be at the focus, as you said, you know, of the launch or w- whatever happens? just so that they feel like they're not going to be gouged because between the cyberpunk issues that we had mm. this now as well i do think titles need to be careful when that they, it's not just a money grab and it can't you can't just sort of ride the hype wave but not deliver for the fans yeah i think the biggest thing we're seeing from the cyberpunk fallout was and is should i say titles being delayed kind of quite a number of months um into the into the future which and you'll see it again and again whenever a big big title that a lot of people are looking forward to is officially announced as delayed gamers are more than happy Mm. because they do not want a game coming out rushed for stakeholders rush for shareholders should i say to kind of hit targets and hit bottom lines and hit quarterly reports they're like i don't care how long the game takes to come out i just want it to come out and to be to be playable and to be pretty uh, to be as polished as possible so it's kind of it's very kind of 
refreshing to see that from game you know because back in the day when games were delayed like big titles they they would have none of it and they'd get they'd, they'd literally do some you know they'd be harassing the developer online you know i can't believe you're delaying your game but it's the the titles the tides have changed with with the feedback i'm seeing on twitter and on different uh sites saying look at delay it all you like i don't care how long it's delayed i just want a good game when it comes out you know and that gives us confidence that you actually are taking the time to focus on the quality and maybe tweak how the game is kind of uh how you progress through the game if it's not as much of a grind as some games are getting backlash for if it's a bit more kind of uh, progressive and a bit more favorable and rewarding to a gamer that does spend whatever they spend on a title and not have to kind of spend 400 hours trying to get to the end boss or whatever it may be so yeah it's 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 going to be interesting there's games that we spoke about i think previously that have been uh, been delayed since and as i said everyone's everyone's happier for it because they just hope that they're going to use that time to make it the best possible title Mm-hmm. Well, needless to say, we will uh, hear from John about all of the titles that come out and we will identify the good ones that are worth your money mm-hmm. and the rubbish that you should avoid. Uh, you can, of course, read all of the reviews up on theeffect.net. Uh, that's where John and his team publish everything from phones, games, everything, like literally anything to do with tech, <laughs> you'll find up on theeffect.net. Uh, John, as always, great to chat to you. Talk to you soon. Cheers, Jess. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can, of course, listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday morning. John Friday's up next here on News Talk. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.